This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gaim. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Hi, everyone. Good to see you this afternoon. Um, Question for you before we get into the text. What would you rate as the top 100 pop songs of all time? The top 10, the top 10, should I say, not the top 100. Uh, when I was at school, I, I used to do this with a good friend. We would make lists and compare them and debate them, and uh, we eventually settled on our top 100. Um, and uh, I googled it the other day, uh, and of course, however many dozens of, of lists and dozens of opinions as to the top 100 and top 10. There is one song though that um, appeared on pretty much all of the top 100, 100 lists that I saw. Uh, in fact, it's not just in, the, in most of the top 100s I saw. It was in the vast majority of top 10s, and it appeared in the top three of more uh, lists than any other, uh, any other song. I wonder if you're starting to think about what it might be. I'll give you a clue. It's 50 years old, give or take. Uh, and I bet I could say one key word from it, and all of you would immediately have it playing in your minds. Anna's nodding. Um, so, in fact, take a guess. 
Uh, tell the person next to you, what do you think? What would you say that most people seem to rate as the best or among the top pop songs of all time? I'll give you a second to tell everybody. I mean, sorry, to tell the folks next to you. <laughs> All right. John? Okay. I bet you'll get it from the first note. some good things can come from Liverpool. <laughs> so why, uh, why has this song, this really quite simple song, achieved such fame? What makes it, of all the songs, according to many, the greatest pop song ever written? Fifty years later, why does it still resonate with hundreds of millions of people? Well, because John Lennon was right, and his song still strikes a chord in the heart. We don't have to agree with all of the worldview he promotes in the song, but essentially he's onto something true, and he's not the only one. We are all dreamers. We do all dream of, we all imagine a different world, a world of peace in which all is well and at rest. We all know, deep down in our knowers, that the world isn't meant to be the way it is, that we were made for something different, something better, for somewhere better. We are all homesick for a place we've never known. And Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about that place. It takes us to the place where that memory, where that longing for peace has its roots. It describes to us the world as it was meant to be. And more than that, it points us beyond the longing for what was, for the world we lost, to the hope of what is to come, to the eternal hope prepared for all who are Christ's. So I'm going to pray for us very briefly, and then we'll look at three things in this passage. The world that is lost, the home prepared for us, and where we are today. Our dear, gracious, heavenly Father, would you be at work in these next minutes in our hearts, through your Holy Word, by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see in your Word what you would have us see, your goodness in creation, the promise of a home to come. And what you have called us to in Christ, in between. Amen. Well, um, do keep your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 2. And we'll look first at the world we lost. Well, the opening chapters of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2, have two big sections, two main movements. And together they tell us of the world as it was. The world not as it is now but the world as God created it, the world we lost. The first movement plays from verse 1 of chapter 1 to 2 verse 3, and we looked at that over the past two weeks, that God in the time before time created everything from nothing. And then later, 
after he had created the whole universe in however long that took, in six days he lovingly prepared a land for the man and the woman that he was still to create, a land suited to them, a land good for them, a home for them. And then when their home was ready, God created them, man and woman, male and female. He created them in his image to in some way be like him, to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied in him. And you remember that the climax of that first movement is chapter 2, verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. God invited Adam and Eve into his rest with him. And in the way Moses told the story, he deliberately left out the evening of the seventh day because it's a picture of everlasting rest with God, of never-ending peace with him in his presence. Well, what about the second movement? Well, just as the first movement has a climax, so does the second. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, what's that all about? Were they naked and not ashamed because they had perfect bodies? Their appearance was perfect and they knew it. So they had no fear that their spouse would find any fault because there was no fault to find. In other words, their freedom was from shame was because they had nothing to be ashamed of. Is that what's going on here? Well, no, it isn't. How do we know that? Because of verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, verse 24 creates the relationship where verse 25 can happen. And verse 24 is about the covenant commitment of marriage. One man, one woman, holding fast to each other in a one flesh union for life. Covenant, committed union, not perfect beauty, is what creates the context for a shame-free marriage. So the point is not that they feel no shame because they have nothing to be ashamed of. The point is that they feel no shame because of the gracious nature of covenant love. Not because he is perfectly handsome. Not because she is flawlessly beautiful. No, they feel no shame because the grace of covenant love covers over the flaws of the beloved. Now imagine it, friends. Imagine such a relationship. Nothing to hide, not because you're perfect, but because you know that you are viewed through the eyes of grace. Knowing and being known, nothing hidden, naked in body and soul, and grace overruling all. The very depths of your soul fully known, and knowing that you are safe in grace-filled covenant love. Now you might ask the question, and it's a good question, am I reading into things a bit much? Here in Genesis 2, sin hasn't entered the world yet, so there are no flaws, there are no sins to be covered. Adam and Eve were actually perfect at this point, so where am I getting this emphasis on covenant love from? Well, this is important, friends, it really is. It's important you see this, and that you see it in the Scriptures, not in just my speculations. So, yes, sin did only come into the world after this. 
Adam and Eve didn't have to exercise grace in covenant love to cover any sins or flaws in the other yet. But the fact that they didn't have to exercise grace yet doesn't mean that grace-filled covenant love wasn't still, even before the fall, the foundation of freedom from shame. How can I be sure of that? Two reasons. First, because Jesus, in Matthew 19, quotes this verse, Genesis 2.24, that is, to show that God intended covenant love to be the foundation of marriage both before and after the fall, both in a state of sinlessness and in a state of fallenness. In both states, covenant love is the foundation of marriage. And second reason, because the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, in fact, I'll read it uh, quickly, Um, Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. Uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery... Hang on. So you see there what he's doing. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. But why? Where does he go with that thought? Next verse. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see the logic here? Genesis 2.24, God makes covenant-keeping love the foundation of marriage both before and after the fall. And marriage was designed by God from the beginning to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. And what is the very essence of that relationship? What is the very heart of Christ's relationship with the church? That in grace-filled covenant love, he passes over our sins. In grace-filled covenant love, Christ passes over the sins of his bride. And that is what marriage was always, even before the fall, intended to be a picture of. We, the church, the bride of Christ, are naked in the sight of him before whom all will account. Hebrews 4. And in our nakedness, free from shame. Because we know that he will not shame or condemn us with our sin. And if that grace-filled covenant love is the reason we, the church, are now free from shame, and God designed marriage to point to the relationship between Christ and the church, then that confirms our interpretation of what's going on here in Genesis 2. Verse 25 flows out of verse 24. The man and his wife were naked and not ashamed, not because they had nothing to be ashamed of, even though at this point that was true. They didn't have anything to be ashamed of. They were naked and not ashamed because the grace-filled covenant relationship of marriage is designed to be the foundation of freedom from shame. Okay, let's uh, take a step back and look at the world we lost as Moses pictures it in these two main movements of Genesis 1 and 2. God, God the Creator, prepared not just the earth for man to live on, not just the stars for man to marvel at, but also a home, a specific home, a land in the Near East, a little inland from the rich Mediterranean, watered by four great rivers, to be home. 
And when the land was ready, he made Adam in his image to know him, to love him, to enjoy co-laboring with him in his world, extending the beautiful garden across the face of the whole earth. And then God made for Adam a companion, a helper suitable to him in this wonderful life that God had prepared for them both. They were so perfectly suited to be soulmates to one another that Adam said of her, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, you are mine and I am yours. We belong to each other and I love you as I love my own life. And God gave her to him to be his wife and he to her to be her husband in graceful covenant love. The man and his wife enjoyed rest with God, at peace with him, in his presence. And because they were both at peace with God, they were perfectly at peace within themselves and at peace with one another. They were naked and not ashamed, knowing one another and being known in intimate and safe, grace-filled love. Grace that not only covered one another's flaws, but grace that saw the absolute best in one another's intentions. Grace that delighted to hear the other person's dreams and desires to do good. Grace that delighted to bring all their own gifts and strengths to help in fulfilling the dreams and desires of the other. Grace that both covered weakness and delighted in the humble, joyful exercise of God-given strength. And it was not just meant to be Adam and Eve. No, Adam was the head of all humanity. And grace was to characterize all human relationships. Husband to wife, wife to husband, father to son, mother to daughter, neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend. Imagine living in this world, friends. Imagine the world of Genesis 1 and 2, the world before the fall. This is the world we lost. In the words we heard earlier, imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And he's not. Because the memory of Genesis 1 and 2 lives in the heart of every man, every woman, every child. God has coded it into the operating system of your soul. You know in your knower that things aren't meant to be the way they are. You know something has been lost and how great has been that loss. And now humankind is not unashamed. We know we are guilty, flawed, sinful, and so we hide. We hide from God, we hide from one another. And grace does not generally characterize human relationships. Nakedness, vulnerability, honesty is no longer safe. And it's not only our sins and weaknesses we hide. We don't feel safe sharing our deepest desires, our dreams, our hopes with one another because we don't know if they'll be met with encouragement or with disdain. So we hide, we conceal, we self-justify, we self-protect. But the good news from God is that all that was lost in Adam is found in Christ. The world as it was in Genesis 1 and 2 is lost forever. But God's plan is not defeated. 
and the longing in every human heart for the world that once was will, in Christ, be satisfied in the world to come, in a new world promised. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Just as in Genesis 1 and 2, God had prepared a place for his people, so he has prepared a new home, a new world for those who are his in Christ. And just as the first movement of Genesis reached its climax on the seventh day with God's people at rest with him, at peace with him, enjoying his presence, so too in our eternal home, in the promised new world, the voice from the throne of heaven declares, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his. He will be theirs. And in that glorious promise is the restoration of all that was lost 10,000 times over. Peace with God. Peace within. Peace with creation. Peace with one another. Forever. That's the big picture, friends. The beginning and the end. The world created and lost. The new world promised. So what about now? How now shall we live? In this world, today. In the in-between. Between the world we lost and the new world promised. Well, look at the big picture pattern. Both in the original creation and in the new world to come, what's the big picture? What are the main headlines? Peace with God and peace with one another. Now, there are a thousand practical things that that means in your and my everyday waking hours, but I'll touch briefly on a few. First, the good news is not only future. It is right now good news. There is an ultimate peace to come, an all-encompassing peace in the new world promised. But are you at peace with God right now? No matter how you try to hide, you are naked to the deepest, deepest depths of your soul before the eyes of the one true holy God. Are you at peace with him now? Don't hide, friend. If your heart condemns you, you can be reconciled right now. Reconciled to God, at peace with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who made atonement, who paid the price for your sin so that you don't have to. Every shame that, would, that you would hide in a dark corner of your memory, Jesus says to you, Bring it to me. Bring me your shame. I will wear it. Bring me your guilt. I will own it. Grace and peace are yours forever. You can 
live now at peace with God. Second, to my married Christian brothers and sisters, can we commit to, by God's grace, in other words, on the foundation of the grace that we have in Christ, the peace with God that is ours, can we commit to being naked and not ashamed in our marriages? To knowing and being known in intimate and safe covenant love. Can we commit to prayerfully pleading that God would, by his Holy Spirit, make us ever more grace-filled and grace-giving husbands and wives? How we treat each other, how we love each other in marriage tells the world a story. That's what marriage is for. So are we telling God's story? Do our marriages tell the story, show the reality, even if imperfectly, of Christ's love for his church, of grace-filled covenant love, grace that looks past weaknesses and flaws, grace that encourages the exercise of all the gifts and the talents and the strengths that God has given, grace that both provides a refuge from trouble, even when the trouble is caused by my own sin, And grace that sends me out into the world to do good a thousand times stronger than I would be on my own. Wanted us to see the the big picture of this passage and so haven't focused too much on how God orders the relationship of marriage, but it, it is here in the text and there is one point I want to make from that. There is a headship and a submission in the marriage relationship which God always intended to picture the grace-filled love of Christ to his bride, the church. Sin messed it all up. And what had been created as grace-filled became grace-less. The humble, loving headship of man was twisted into hostile domination in some, cowardly passivity in others, and a thousand other distortions of Christ-like headship. The intelligent, willing submission of women was twisted into manipulativeness in some, a defiant disposition in others, and a thousand other distortions of Christ-like submission. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined and twisted them and made them ugly and destructive. But in Christ it need not be that way. God has not abandoned his original creation order. It was, including marriage, including the headship of the husband and the submission of the wife, it was, God pronounced it, very good. I don't want to get into the details of how that works out, but I I do want you to hear that there was an order to human relationships before the fall, and it was good, very good. Order was not contrary to grace. In fact, order was part of how grace expressed itself. Now, our experience of marriage in a fallen world is mixed, isn't it? Some have experienced great marriages. Some have ended in pain. All have experienced some measure of both joy and pain in marriage. That's the reality of living in the in-between. But that mustn't keep us from trusting God that his original creation order was and remains very good. And that, though it will be hard in this in-between world to work out all of what 
humble, loving, gentle, strong headship looks like, and hard to work out what intelligent, loving, encouraging, strong submission looks like, by God's grace we must pursue it, believing that it is good. Husbands and wives, do we really believe that God means what he says in his word, in the Bible, about headship and submission? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5. Those are strong words. Do we really believe them? Really believe that God calls you right now to the same kind of self-giving, sacrificial love that Jesus shows his bride. You must believe it. I must believe it because the Bible teaches it. It is a great and a high and a weighty calling that should drive us to our knees, pleading God's help for grace to be faithful to such an expression of Christ-likeness. You must do it. I must do it. And we cannot do it but for Christ in us. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's very strong language. And it doesn't ease up. For the husband is the head of the wife. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Do you really believe that? The world around you doesn't. When a husband leads like Christ and a wife responds like the bride of Christ, there is a harmony, there is a partnership, there is a strength that is more beautiful more satisfying and more fruitful than anything and everything the world tries to tell us marriage should be. But friends, we do need to start by at least acknowledging that we live in a time and a place, a culture, that finds those ideas offensive in the extreme. And you and I are not unaffected by the cultural air we breathe. Ask yourself honestly, do you really believe that God's design and pattern for marriage is best and will bring you and your husband or wife the greatest possible joy? Do you live like you really believe it? We may all have some repenting to do. Be at peace with God. Pursue grace-filled marriages. And third, to every one of us who are Christ's, encourage one another and build one another up. Let grace be the flavor of our relationships. Remember, all of human relationships were meant to be pictured in the relationship between Adam and Eve. They were all meant to be based on grace, covenant-keeping grace. So grace should be the flavor of our friendships. Because we are at peace with God, we don't need to cover ourselves, we don't need to prove ourselves, we don't need to protect ourselves. We can and must be safe for one another. This church can and must be a safe place to be honest about your weakness, to be naked and not ashamed. And this church must also be a safe place to pursue the dreams and the desires that God has put on your heart without fear of ridicule. He died for us, the Apostle Paul says, 
that we may live together with him. Therefore, because you are justified, because you are at peace with God, now encourage one another, build one another up. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, in the in-between, between the world we lost and the world promised, you can be at peace with God. Husbands and wives, you can, and by his grace must continue to picture Christ-likeness in grace-filled love, both covering each other's weaknesses and spurring one one another on (laughs) to Christ-like greatness. We can, and by his grace, must be a community flavored by grace, Grace that covers weakness. Grace that adds strength to strength in pursuing God-given ambitions for his glory. And you all have them. John Lennon was right to dream of a, a world of peace. Some good does come from Liverpool, but better things, with apologies to some, come from Belfast. And C.S. Lewis teaches us to both keep alive that dream and to not believe that it is merely a dream. Looking back to the lost world of Genesis 1 and 2 and ahead to the promised world to come, Lewis says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under, Never let it get turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Great has been our loss. Even greater the promise of the world to come. This is how we live in the in-between. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray. Our gracious God and Father, great are your ways. How wonderful your creation. Very good. Very good, you called it. And it was. Man at peace with you, enjoying your fellowship. Husband and wife at peace with one another in grace-filled covenant love, overlooking flaws and weaknesses, encouraging the best. How wonderful your design. How far we have fallen. How great our salvation in Christ. How amazing your mercy in promising a new world where all that we have lost, that we forfeited through our own fault, through our own sin, you restore by grace 10,000 times over. Speed the day when you will dwell among us forever. And Father, would we be a community now, individually, in our marriages, in our families, in our home groups, in our friendships, flavored by grace, a community at peace with you, a community at peace with one another, 
covering over one another's weaknesses in grace, and in grace saying, go for it. You can live a great life for God. You can be great in Christ-likeness. Go for it. Go for it. Don't let the lies and the shame and the guilt hold you back. His grace is greater. Go for it. Would you make us, Father, this kind of community? To your glory, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.